0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobs Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Genesis 45 is the pinnacle of the story of Joseph and his brothers in many ways. You know that if anyone had a right, had a right to hold a grudge, it was Joseph. Twenty-two years prior to Genesis 45, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They betrayed him. He was taken down to Egypt for 13 years. He was enslaved and imprisoned. Joseph rose to power and was put in charge of distributing the the food of Egypt. Um, Joseph's brothers uh, were suffering from the famine, Joseph's family. And so they came down from Canaan to Egypt to ask for food from the prime minister of Egypt. They didn't know that it was Joseph. He was disguised. And Joseph lays out for him, them a series of tests to see if he could once again trust them. Joseph's final test was the test of the silver cup. This is all kind of recap to catch us up to speed. In the Genesis chapter 44, we read about how Joseph plants his silver cup in Benjamin, the youngest son's pack, to see if the brothers would be faithful to the family. They do indeed come and plead for mercy for Benjamin. And then Judah gives this stirring speech in which he offers himself as a substitute for his brother Benjamin. Joseph is overwhelmed by God's transformation in their life. Joseph is overwhelmed at the potential for reconciliation. And that's when we get to Genesis chapter 45. So read along with me. We'll go ahead and read the whole chapter. Uh, Last week we got through verse 15, but let's, let's read through the entire thing just so we continue to see the storyline. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, Do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brothers Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them. He gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come to this chapter, this beautiful chapter of forgiveness and reconciliation between two sets of people that, would seem, would never reconcile. God, we pray that you would do work in our hearts, Lord. That you would help us to reconcile with those who have sinned against us. As far as we can go, as far as we can do, help us to take that difficult road of reconciliation. It's hard to do, God. We need your grace. We need your power to do this. We, help, we ask that you would help us. In Christ's name, amen. In 1492, there were two families, the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds, and they were at one time very friendly families, but they engaged in this bitter feud. The disagreement was that there was a position opening up to be Lord Deputy, and both families wanted their own family members to hold the position. In 1492, this tension broke into outright warfare as the tensions built and built. It started as a small skirmish outside the walls of the city. But as people got more angry and more passionate, it it exploded into outright warfare. The Butler family realized what was happening. They realized that they were losing this battle, and so they retreated back into the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral. As the siege wore on, the leader of the Fitzgeralds, Gerald Fitzgerald realized that the feud was foolish. He realized here were two families from the same region who went to the same church, who claimed to worship the same God, and yet they were fighting with one another. They were battling with one another. And so Gerald called out to the men in the church, and he called out, saying that he wanted to make peace with them, but they had a hard time believing it. It was too good to be true. Here they were, trapped in the church, surrounded, outnumbered, outmanned. And Gerald reaches out for reconciliation. As a gesture of good faith, the head of the Fitzgerald family, Gerald Fitzgerald ordered that a hole be cut in the door. Here's a picture of the door. He then thrust his arm through the door and offered his hand in peace to those on the other side. Upon seeing Gerald's hand, the butler family realized that if this man was willing to risk his own arm in sticking it through this door, that his intentions were sincere, that he desired reconciliation. And as he stuck his hand through the door, it was met with another hand on the other side, shaking. The butlers came out. And they made peace with the Fitzgeralds. This door is actually still on display in St. Patrick's Cathedral and is simply called the Door of Reconciliation. There is this story between the butlers and the Fitzgeralds lives on in Ireland in a famous phrase called chancing your arm, chancing your arm. And what it means is to take a risk, especially when it comes to reconciliation, Last week, I challenged you to think of someone that is hard to forgive, someone who has hurt you, someone who has sinned against you. Maybe it is an ex-spouse, maybe it is a current spouse, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, a parent, a sibling, a pastor, maybe even yourself. My hope is that through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will stop the battle and that we will chance our arm. That we will stick it out for the purpose of reconciliation with those who have hurt us and sinned against us. Last week we started by looking at this recipe of reconciliation. And we're going to briefly go through the first two things that we talked about last week. But I want you to notice that all of these are verbs. All of these are things that we are to do. The first part of the recipe of reconciliation is to forgive. We talked about why should we forgive? Why not just carry a fist in your pocket? Why not just stay indifferent? Why not just stay distant? Why should we forgive? And the first reason we saw is because God commands us to forgive. That's always a good reason to do something, isn't it? When God commands it. Colossians 3.13 says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The second reason is personal freedom. We talked about how unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping the other person dies. And the third reason is reconciliation. Forgiveness is the first step in reconciliation. Reconciliation can never happen unless there is forgiveness. And so that's why we should forgive. A friend reminded me this week that many times we are called to forgive even before the feelings are there, even before the freedom is there. We are to forgive the people for the sin that they have committed against us. And it is through that decision to forgive that the feelings come trailing after, in which God liberates our hearts from the burden of bitterness and anger. How can we forgive? Maybe you want to forgive, but it's difficult. First, we can forgive by experiencing God's forgiveness for us. You can only forgive, you can only love to the degree that you have been forgiven and been loved. And so we must experience God's forgiveness, remember God's forgiveness for us in Christ, and through that we can forgive one another. But with Joseph, we see that he was able to forgive by dwelling on God's purposes and not the offenders. Joseph didn't ignore his brother's sin. He didn't minimize it. He didn't say, you know, it's okay, But Joseph was able to look through the pain, look through the suffering, look through their purposes, and look to God's purposes for selling him into slavery. Do you remember what they were? Joseph detailed about how God had brought him to Egypt to save thousands of people in the midst of this famine. How God had brought him to Egypt to preserve the remnant of a Savior that was promised in Genesis 3.15. How God had brought him to Egypt that he might provide a place for Israel to come in the land of Goshen and become a great nation believing that God has foreordained all that comes to pass, both good and evil, frees us to forgive because it reminds us that our suffering is never, ever, ever wasted by God. Our suffering is so precious to God that he promises to use it for good. Even if it's not good, he will use it for good, for his glory and for our good. So the first ingredient in the recipe of reconciliation is forgiveness. The second one that we started to look at was trust. Now, forgiveness takes one person. If there's someone who has sinned against you, who has hurt you, who has passed on, you can forgive them. But trust takes two people. Trust is something that has to be built together. And this is one reason why reconciliation is not always possible, because trust cannot and should not always be given to people. But we must form a pathway forward for people to regain our trust. We looked last week and saw that in the life of Joseph and in Scripture, that we are to forgive quickly and trust slowly. We are to forgive quickly and trust slowly. You know, you see this play out in all of life, don't you? I hope you don't get married after the first date. I hope that you wait for trust to be built where you can see their good side, their bad side. See if this is a person of character that you can love and respect. Someone that you can trust with your heart. When when uh, When we appoint people to be community group leaders or when you vote on people to become elders in the church, we don't want to do it too quickly because we want them to prove themselves. We want them to prove their character, that they prove themselves to be trustworthy people. Not perfect people, but trustworthy people. And so we are called to forgive quickly and trust slowly. The rest of the ingredients take one person. This is a unilateral thing that you can do. Trust takes two people. The rest of these, it's on your side of the court. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? Okay. So the recipe for reconciliation, we must forgive, we must work towards trust, and thirdly, we must bless. When we are sinned again, naturally, at least me, I want retribution, right? I was joking around with someone before the service. If you were here last week, you heard this story about how I took this trip down the, to to, uh, to Milwaukee, whatever that big city's called. I went down to Milwaukee and I uh, went to this meeting that they asked me to come to, and they said, "You know we don't need you, right?" And I just want to say, "You know what, I don't need you either, right?" <laughs> it goes both ways We want. Retribution. We want an eye for an eye. We want a tooth for a tooth. We don't want people just to understand our pain, which is good, right? You want people to understand how they have hurt you. You want them to understand the depth of the pain. But we actually want to repay the pain. We want them to hurt to the depth that we have hurt. We want to cause them pain. We want retribution. We want to legislate that pain upon them. But Joseph shows his brother's mercy. Joseph doesn't punish them as their sin deserves. Joseph doesn't throw them into prison as they deserve. But Joseph shows grace. Joseph blesses his brothers. See, Joseph is not only not against his brothers anymore, that would be mercy, but Joseph is now for his brothers. He is for those who have hurt him, who have sinned against him. Joseph not only withholds retribution, just Joseph blesses them By disseminating grace upon them, Joseph not only takes away the punishment, but positively, Joseph blesses them by pouring out upon them the riches of Egypt. Look in verse 9 with me. Joseph says to his brothers, hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus say your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen was a fertile area. Um, it was outside the, the main part of, I guess you'd say, Egyptian culture. And so it was a place where Israel could come. They could remain separate. They could develop who they were as a per- people, but it was also a fertile ground in which they could they could farm. They could they could." take their sheep, and they could shepherd them. And so this was a place where Joseph was bringing them that they could develop into a great nation. It goes on, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your whole household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Skip down to verse 21. Partway through, see how Joseph is pouring out blessings upon blessings. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commands of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a, chance, a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. That was his blood brother, his one blood brother, his kid brother. 23, to his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. For two years, his brothers were hungry. For two years, the family of Israel was wondering if they were going to perish because of starvation. They came down to Egypt, destitute, hungry, and needy. And then, in Genesis 45, they discover that the one that they were going to, to ask for food from Egypt, was the very one that they had betrayed. The one that they came to plead for their own life, to plead for food that they could save themselves, was the very one that they sold into slavery. It was their brother, Joseph. And Joseph responds, he doesn't remain indifferent, he doesn't cast them away, He doesn't repay evil with evil, but he repays evil with good. Joseph blesses them and sends them with an abundance of transportation, an abundance of food, an abundance of clothing, and the promise that Joseph will provide for all of their needs. The brothers must have been overwhelmed by this grace. They must have been overwhelmed by the blessing of Joseph. As we'll see later, it was hard to believe. But we see this is the character of our Savior. This is the command of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Matthew 5, 38, Christ says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what we want, right? Retribution. We want them to experience the pain that we have experienced. Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus is commanding us that those who would seek to hurt you, bless them. Be a blessing to them. Amy Beale was a 26-year-old Fulbright scholar. She went to South Africa in 1993 to help the black voters register for the free election to end the apartheid. And even though she was seeking to help the people, when she was driving in her car one day, Some of the people who she was trying to help pulled her out of her car and violently killed her. Soon afterwards, Amy's parents, Linda and Peter Beale, quit their jobs and moved from Orange County, California to South Africa, not to seek revenge, but to start a foundation in Amy's name to help the very people that killed her. Today, Two of the men that killed Amy work for the foundation. They call Miss Beale Makulu or grandmother because of their relationship with her. Amy's parents, in a miraculous work of God, forgave the murderers. Slowly, they built trust into their relationship and they blessed their daughter's murderer. Not only seeking revenge, not seeking revenge but they actually set up a foundation to help them, and they gave them jobs to support their families. Amy's parents not only forgave, but they paid back evil with good. This is the heart and character of God. Is this not what God has done for you? Has God not repaid your evil towards him with good? Has he not loved you and showed you grace upon grace upon grace? This is a part of God's journey of reconciliation in our lives, and he calls it to be part of ours. Have you ever extended grace to someone who has hurt you? Have you ever blessed someone who has cursed you? Have you ever prayed for those who abuse you? This is part of the recipe for reconciliation. So we see we must forgive, we must work towards trust, we must bless those who curse us, We also see that we must dignify. I wasn't quite sure what word to use here, but the emphasis is that we aren't to go around slandering the person, gossiping the person, telling everyone how horrible this person is. I want to take you back a few chapters to Genesis chapter 40. If you would turn to there in your Bibles. Joseph was in prison, um, wrongfully imprisoned, and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker come to prison. Uh, They're sent there justly. And Joseph interprets the dream of the chief cupbearer, and then he asks the cupbearer this question, Genesis 40, verse 14. Joseph says, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. You know, it's interesting because Joseph, again, he doesn't minimize what was done to him. But you also don't see him calling out his brothers, do you? You don't see him even calling out Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. He's saying, this is what was done against me. It was wrong and it was horrible. And yet he still dignifies his brothers. He still dignifies Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. Now that may seem like a stretch, but continue forward to today's story. Genesis 45.1. We read, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, why did Joseph send out all the guard? Why did Joseph send everyone out except for his brothers? Well, certainly this was an intimate family affair. But it was also to preserve the dignity of the brothers. Joseph knows that they are about to talk about the brothers' sin their betrayal, their wickedness. Joseph sends out the guards to protect the reputations of his brothers. Verse four, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph knew their sin. They knew their sin. But Joseph didn't seem to find it necessary to tell everyone about their sin. Joseph dignified his brother's. It's also evidence in how Pharaoh treats Joseph's brothers. We read in verse 16 that when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh showed no concern at all. Pharaoh didn't say, hey, Joseph, are you guys okay again now? Are you guys all right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh didn't say, you know, what? I hate those brothers for what they did to my friend Joseph. Pharaoh doesn't show any of that stuff. Instead, Joe, Pharaoh pours out. Upon the brothers, all the riches of Egypt. And he tells them, Have no concern for your good, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh's response to the brothers' coming seems to be an indication that Pharaoh had no idea of their sin, of their wickedness against Joseph. Let me share how this plays out in my own life in a positive way. In pastoral ministry, You learn very quickly that there is a difference between a complaint and a complainer. If you work in a workplace, if you're a boss, this is helpful to know for you as well, right? If someone brings to you a complaint, you are so thankful that they came. It takes courage to bring a complaint, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I hate conflict. And so when someone brings a complaint, you are thankful because uh, they are exposing sin in your life so that you can repent to God, repent to them, or maybe bring clarification. You are thankful when someone brings a complaint, but sometimes there is a complainer, right? Anyone experience this? <laughs> Anyone know what I'm talking about? Sometimes there's a complaint. Sometimes there's a complainer. And when there's a complainer, that is a heart issue. You have to pastor them de- differently, shepherd them differently, love them differently, because you must deal with the heart issues. Well, at Jacob's, well, I've been very fortunate. There, there really has not been complainers, except for one person, and that person's no longer here, so I can share about this. You won't know who it is. But this person... I would say was a complainer, and Jason, I'm sure, knows who it is. Where's Jason? Do you know who it is, don't you? I don't have to say the name, maybe. And we knew, I could tell you that this person was a complainer because Jason and or I would receive a mile-long email once a month telling us about just all the things we're doing wrong, right? And would tell us about how skewed we are, and then it even got into personal attacks, in which they would come after my character, they would call me names, and it was very, very, very hurtful. Early in ministry, I decided, by the grace of God, not to bring the baggage home to my wife. Not to tell her, if you do counseling with me, my wife has no idea that you do counseling with me. If you send me an email or if you have a complaint, my wife has no idea that you've done any of this stuff. And here's how this plays out. When that person, that complainer was attacking me, attacking Jason, Jason, my wife would still come in Sunday mornings and give that person a hug and say, how are you doing? I love you and I care for you. Because by God's grace, I decided not to share any of that stuff with my wife. Now, I want to give some qualifications on that. Certainly, it is good to seek wise counsel, right? If someone has hurt you, if someone has offended you, you can protect the person keep their dignity, but go and seek wise counsel. So in this situation, when the emails got very harsh, I remember taking out everything that would describe who this person was and giving it to one of the elders and saying, how should I respond to this? Because I don't know what to do. I'm really hurt. They had no idea who this person was, but I said, what do I do with this situation? And I received wise counsel. Sometimes, They have done something illegally against you. They have hurt you. They have abused you. And God calls us to submit to our authorities and to report that to the authorities. But by and large, we are called to do what we are told in Matthew 18, to go to that person one-on-one, not to go and talk to a bunch of different people, say, what do you think I should do? Listen to how horrible this person is and detail who this person is and all those things. Go to that person one-on-one and ask them, talk to them, confront them, share with them how you have been hurt by them. They may not even know. And by going to them one-on-one, you dignify them. If they don't repent or if they don't clarify and you're not satisfied, then you grab another brother or sister in Christ and you bring them with you. And if they still don't listen, then you bring the church. That's the outline that was given by Jesus in Matthew 18. And so here's what I would like to ask you to do. If someone comes to you and you start to hear them talk about someone else in the church, or someone in another church, or someone in another family, or whoever it might be. If they start to rail against them, would you just stop them with the love of God and ask them this one question: Have you gone talk to that person? And they'll respond, "I can't talk to them. They're impossible to talk to. They're arrogant. They're go talk to them. It doesn't matter how they respond." It, it, It honestly doesn't because for you to be obedient to the word of God, you need to confront them with love and grace and humility. You need to confront them. Searching your own heart for a plank in your own eye. Going to them lovingly with grace, confronting them in their sin. And by doing that, you actually dignify them. You're saying, I love you enough to tell you what I see in your life. And it's not good but you're also not spreading it around to everybody else. And so we're called to dignify those that have offended us. I lost my place here. All right. Finally, the last part of the recipe of reconciliation is that we are called to believe. We are called to forgive. We are called to trust as much as we can. It's not always possible. We are called to bless, to dignify. Finally, we are called to believe. When we are called to forgiveness and reconciliation, many times it is an unbelievable call, isn't it? It's something that we just can't imagine is possible. In verse 25, we read that the brothers went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not He did not believe them. He could not believe that God could do something this wonderful. He did not believe that this was possible. It was too good to be true. But the evidence overwhelmed him. Verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, God's name for Jacob, Said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. These wagons would have been evidence that they were sent by this great man of Egypt because there's no way that they would have been able to lay their hands on him otherwise. And, Joseph, and Jacob was overwhelmed by the fact that his relationship with Joseph could be restored. Now, there wasn't a lot of tension between Jacob and Joseph. Uh, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. They probably liked each other quite a bit. But it was kind of unbelievable that God would restore that relationship. But the brothers actually had difficulty believing that God had restored that relationship, that God had reconciled that relationship. As the story continues to play out, the the, the family of Israel comes down to Egypt. They're living in peace with Joseph. They're, They're fellowshipping with Joseph. But then Jacob dies. Their father dies. And they say this, they say, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. But Joseph responded, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The forgiveness, trust, and grace given by Joseph to his brothers was too hard to believe. The reconciliation that took place, they didn't even have a category for. And so God calls us to believe the unbelievable, to believe that we could be reconciled to those who are our enemies. You might be here thinking, you know what? The situation I am is too bad, it is too horrible. Reconciliation is impossible. But if you are a Christian, you should know better. You should know that reconciliation is always possible because if a holy God could reconcile himself to a sinner like you and a sinner like me, then certainly God can reconcile two sinners back together. Remember, the brother's story is our story. Just as Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, so does God reveal his identity to us in Jesus Christ. Just as Joseph forgave those who sinned against him, God in Christ forgave you and me. Just as Joseph says to his brothers time and again, come, come close to me, come down to me, come near to me. So God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Just as Joseph fell upon the neck of his prodigal brothers, so God falls upon the neck of his prodigal children. Just as Pharaoh lavished on the brothers all the riches of Egypt on behalf of Joseph, so God lavishes the riches of heaven upon you on behalf of Jesus Christ. And just as Joseph joyfully extended grace to his undeserving brothers and blessed them, so God joyfully extends grace to us, his undeserving children, and blesses us with grace upon grace upon grace. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians verse 5. He says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice the order there. God reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We can reconcile because we have experienced reconciliation with God. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciliation, uh, in, that is, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God may appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we are struck by the depth of our sin, when we are struck by the depth of our unworthiness, it is indeed hard to believe, but it is true that God has reconciled our relationship with him, and there is nothing ever in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can offer reconciliation to those who have sinned against us because God in Christ has not only offered reconciliation, he has completed reconciliation. He has finished reconciliation between us and him. You know, Christmas is coming soon, Some. Christmas sales are already open. I think Toy Barn at Fleet Farms are already open, right? And many times we forget the joy of Christmas. But the joy of Christmas is very clear and we sing about it every Christmas. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners. What's the word? Reconciled. That is the good news of Christmas. That is the good news of the cross. That is the good news that God has given to us, that he has reconciled us to himself. And now we can go and be reconciled with others. Let me end with a personal story. If you've been around Jacobsville for a while, you have probably heard this story. But this is how I have experienced reconciliation in my own life. When I was growing up, my uh my dad was growing, and, and by the way, he gave me permission to share this. He said, absolutely, share it. When I was growing up, my dad was just growing in, in, in depression, in anger, and frustration. He'd be gone for three weeks out of the month, typically. He'd come home on weekends, and when he came home, it was just horrible. Uh, he was violent. He was yelling. I, I remember him foaming at the mouth. The verbal abuse towards my mother was so horrible. I remember as a child thinking, you know what, maybe if I just jumped out this window, I could get their attention and then they could be connected back together as if that would somehow do it. My dad's verbal abuse turned into some physical abuse towards my mother. My parents eventually got divorced when I was a senior in high school. During my freshman or sophomore year of college, I'm not sure which, I came home on spring break and I remember being in the driveway, playing basketball with my mother. And I asked her a question just about her family history. It was a simple question, an honest question. And she gave me an honest answer. And that honest answer revealed what I would say is the worst of what my dad had ever done. For a year, I didn't talk to my dad. I didn't want to talk to my dad. I was angry at my dad. I hated my dad. There was no way in my mind that we were ever going to reconcile. Well, about a year later, my dad sent out an email. I can't remember what it contained, but I was just waiting to get back at him. And so I responded back to all of my siblings, there's five of us, and to my father, detailing that sin that he had done, that horrific, horrible sin. My dad, who became a Christian, emailed me back this. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to explain anything. He just emailed me back this scripture Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. Jesus says this, You have heard that it is what said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. My dad was confessing that he was my enemy. He was confessing that he had hurt me, that he had sinned against me. And then it continues. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect. That's an interesting definition of perfect, isn't it? You must be perfect, meaning that you must love those who have hurt you. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I too had become a Christian in this time. And these verses mixed with the Holy Spirit was a powerful impact on my life. Then and there at the computer screen, I remember being able to forgive my father knowing that I was like that tax collector. I was that Gentile. I had received the grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation of God, but I was unwilling to give it to my father. Today, By God's grace, my father and I have developed a relationship of trust and love and admiration. I I can say easily, I think he loves the Lord more than I do. He leads his family better than I do. He's now one of my heroes. He's not perfect. Our relationship isn't perfect. But we're reconciled. And I certainly would have told you at one time that that was impossible. And to be honest, with man, it was impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. I don't know where you are in the process of reconciliation with someone who has hurt you. Maybe you have yet to believe that God could actually reconcile your relationship. Maybe you have yet to forgive that person. Maybe you have yet to create an avenue in which they can regain trust in your relationship. Maybe you have yet to bless them. Wherever you are in that recipe of reconciliation, we must remember that God has reached down into time to reconcile us to himself so that we can now reach out to those who have sinned against us and reconcile with them. My hope is that you would reach your arm through that door of reconciliation, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will stop the battle and you will chant your arm. Seeking a reconciliation, again, that is impossible with man, but possible with God. Whoever it is that has sinned against you, it is time to begin that hard, difficult, but glorious supernatural work of reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a topic that hits home for many of us, God. People in our lives who we have been hurt by, Lord we see, God, that reconciliation is not for weak people, but for strong people. People who are able to go and talk to that person one-on-one, Lord God. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are burdened with your commands to go and be reconciled, burdened with your commands to go and talk to that person one-on-one, God. I pray that this would not just become thought That they would not just think about doing it, but they would actually go this week. That they would make plans to go and start the process of reconciliation. Grant them the ability to believe that reconciliation is possible. Grant them the ability to forgive. Bless their efforts to regain trust in the relationship. Lord God, we know that as we reconcile with one another, it is a picture of the gospel of how you have reconciled yourself to us. But we need your help, and we pray that you would. In Christ's name, amen.